Hello, and welcome to A Better Story Podcast, where we search for the sacred in the new stories of the lives of the people around us and the old stories of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Today, we are looking at an old story, not so much a story, but sort of a genre of scripture, specifically those laundry lists of sins that you may have had thrown at you or quoted at you if you grew up in particular religious circles. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible contains a lot of lists of no-nos. From the Hebrew scriptures to the Christian scriptures, they're in there all over the place. Also not shocking, people tend to run with those and maybe beat you over the head with them a little bit. You may have seen this if you've ever been told a list of things that Christians don't do. You know, sex before marriage, drinking alcohol, cussing, smoking, gambling, whatever it may be. And so I want us to look at some of these laundry lists of sins that are in the Christian scriptures in particular, or what some people would call the New Testament, and see if there's actually something sacred about them. And obviously, I kind of think there is, otherwise we wouldn't be doing an episode about this. So let's check it out. Now, even sort of in my most conservative days, I don't think most folks that I went to church with or I myself would have ever said that following Jesus or being a faithful Christian or whatever language you want to put around that is about avoiding a list of sins. I always said, and it was always told to me, it's about a relationship. But when you got down to it, that relationship had some strings attached and that relationship, I was told, would get pretty ugly if I did a certain set of things. So as you may have found, these lists can be sort of harmful. Let's start by checking them out psychologically. First off, it's important to admit that any sort of lists of taboo activities, no-nos, things you're not supposed to do, can actually be developmentally useful for a few years. If you're a parent or if you work with kids, you know that you do have to have a list of things that they cannot do. The brains of kids, particularly under 11, need that sort of structure and those lists of things. But then at about 11 years old or so, we begin to think a little more abstractly and on our own. And you'll begin to find that if you just throw a list at someone, they're not going to find it very helpful or convincing. It can actually be pretty insulting to them. And so when we hold on to those lists of sin or taboo activities for too long, they can suffocate us, they can shame us, they can be used as weapons. So why do we do it? There's tons of different reasons for that. One of them being we like certainty. We talked about this before on the podcast, but our brains respond to certainty with endorphins when we think that we are certain about something. We get a little high, we get a little rush. And so when we have these lists of sins or black and white thinking of things we can and can't do, the world becomes very clear and we get very certain. You also may have seen these sort of taboo lists or lists of sins can be used to exert power over other people or a great way to beat people up and control other people. So at their worst, they're used for that. Here's the ironic thing, though. When we say something is off limits psychologically, it also can give it power. I'm sure you've felt this or seen this. If you tell a teenager, don't cross this line, probably about 50% of teenagers are going to cross that line just because you said not to. There is something in us and in our brains that when we're told enough times that something is bad or off limits, it gives it a little more sway, a little more appeal, a little more desire. So it's not particularly shocking when we see kids who grew up in conservative religious environments tend to react against that and may hit a pretty hard party stage. 
So you actually have some people who would say that these sort of laundry lists of sin that we're going to talk about are sacred in the sense that they give us healthy desire for things. But that's actually not where I went ahead. You can find some other great folks talking about that. Peter Rollins is one of them. But let's actually look at what's going on in some of these lists that you may find in the Christian scriptures and see if they are somehow central to following Jesus, of being a whole person. Can they actually lead us into better stories? So we're not actually going to look at one particular list, but we're actually going to look at the entire genre. If you want to actually go read some of these lists, you're totally welcome to. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, 2 Timothy 3. They all have these big lists of things that usually Paul or someone who's writing as Paul says you're not supposed to do. Maybe you've heard them. Adultery, slander, anger, greed, malice, idolatry, a word that gets mistranslated as homosexual acts. It's actually more of an abusive uh, childlike practice that you can go back and listen to uh, the episode on same-sex love in the Bible and hear a greater explanation on that. Envy, rivalry, murder, gossip, disobeying your parents, bitterness, conceit, sorcery. I don't really get told that one very often. All sorts of things, huge lists of things that you are not supposed to do. So let's look at these lists as a genre because it's a pattern that gets repeated over and over, particularly by Paul or people writing as Paul. Well, as with any document that is 2,000 years old, context is key. Knowing the context of these, or at least having a reasonable guess at the context of what's going on here, helps us decide if this is a list for everyone, or for some, or even how we would consider something like this sacred if it is. So we're gonna get pretty historical here for a little bit. Shout out to Gregory Riley, a scholar who provided a lot of the background info for this. So if you want to know more about that, check out the book, One Jesus, Many Christs. Give it a Google. Not a particularly exciting read, but some great historical context. So to know what's going on with these lists, we have to understand how early followers of Jesus were perceived, particularly by the dominant culture, by Rome. They were perceived as a religion, but they were perceived as a quirky religion. So at the time, in ancient Rome, and really any ancient context, Religion was practiced in temples pretty publicly. Religion was sort of a cultural activity. It was done out in the open. Everyone knew what was going on. It was this sort of public forum setting. Now, there was one particular exception to this, and that was this sort of like subgenre of religious activity called mystery cults. I'm not making this up. These were a thing. They were a thing in almost every variety or flavor of religion in the ancient world. They were these groups that met in homes in secret, oftentimes at night, and they kept some of their rituals secret because they claimed this sort of special access to God. So you had to go through all these entry rites in order to get this sort of magical wisdom. And so because early Christians met in homes, they didn't have temples necessarily at this point in time or churches or anything like that. They were seen by the dominant culture by Rome as a mystery cult which in itself wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't a negative or a positive even. But where it got them in trouble is they happened to look like one mystery cult in particular. It was a mystery cult that was actually outlawed in Rome about 180 years or so before Jesus even ever came on the scene, but it hung around in sort of some illegal forms. And it was called Bacchanalia. It was this group of people who would meet in secret, and it was considered this sort of anti-government group. They worshipped this god, 
called Bacchus or Bacchus, I don't know how you pronounce it, who happened to be the Roman god of wine known for excess. And these folks began to get a little bit of a reputation. The ancient writer Livy talked about how they became known for these like over-the-top sexual encounters where people were having orgies and abusing one another and raping one another. They were known for forging false government documents, even poisoning and murdering one another. And so they got a pretty negative reputation. They were known as these people who would sort of like buck the religious rights of the day, and they would practice a moral behavior that would mess up this sort of believed fragile arrangement with the gods, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. So they were arrested, they were jailed, they were killed. The whole thing was outlawed. So why in the world were Christians confused for this weird mystery cult that worshipped this god Bacchus? Well, there are a lot of kind of surface-level similarities. First off, this Bacchanalia group would wash themselves with pure water, something that looked like baptism. It was this rite of entry for them. They would talk about how both men and women would prophesy in these settings, which is something that's mentioned of early Jesus followers in the book of Acts in reference to a passage from Joel. This group also is known for their feasts that involved a lot of wine, which may look a little bit like communion. And so these early Jesus-following groups were mistaken for them because they would also meet privately in home. Some of their early teaching was public, as you can see through some of the Christian scriptures. It would happen in temple or outdoor settings, but some of it was still private. Things like the Eucharist or communion were taken in private. It was actually the Eucharist or communion in particular that got early Christians in trouble and caused the confusion with this other mystery cult. This really vicious rumor began to go around that Christians in secret at night were eating the flesh of murdered babies. Disgusting, I know. Ridiculous, but that's what people thought. And it was sort of based off this misunderstanding of this Bacchanalia cult because they were known, or at least thought, to eat raw animal flesh as a ritual. And so people thought whenever Jesus followers would talk about communion and eating the blood and body of Christ, they must be literally eating actual people. Early Christians were also accused of incest because they would use the term brother and sister for each other and would talk about how much they loved one another. And of course, that was like highly sexualized in the day. And so people thought they must literally be loving their brothers and sisters physically and sexually. So there's a pretty decent sized group of people, both within power and within the larger Roman culture, who looked at these early Jesus followers and said they are freaks and they are messing things up. And so it didn't take long for them to become the subject of persecution, either physical or social. They, like some of these other mystery cults, were perceived as seditious and immoral. The world at the time of the Roman Empire was sort of seen as held together by two forces. One was called the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. It was this sort of civil governing force that Rome would rule with an iron fist and keep people in line. And so if you sort of acted out, you were considered seditious. And Christians were known for this. You can see this in uh, books like Revelation. You can check out old episodes that I've done on that. More relevant to our episode today, though, is this sort of second peace or agreement. It was called the Pax Deorum, which, by the way, also happens to be an Inya song I found out while Googling this. So uh, feel free to give that a listen. But the Pax Deorum was the peace of the gods. It was this sort of fragile agreement 
that was thought to exist within humanity and the gods. And so if humanity would practice the correct religious rites of the day, and then they would also practice moral behavior, things would be okay. The gods would bless them with peace, with food, with crops, with good weather, all the things that you would want. So when groups would meet in secret, and rumors started to fly about what they were doing in secret, and those things that they were doing were thought to mess up this fragile peace with the gods, you had to take care of those people. And by take care of, I mean like crush them. And so this is the context of these lists, of these laundry lists of sin. There's this perception going around that this small religious group is doing these truly heinous and awful things behind closed doors. Now where these lists come in is there was another practice of these mystery cults. They would use moral codes. They would recite these moral codes. They would swear things that they would never do. And there's some evidence that early Christians would do this too. They would sort of borrow this ritual from some of these mystery cults. Pliny the Younger writes about this a little bit. He says that Christians would be doing this. And so what we find is these lists in all of these Christian scriptures very well could be these sort of moral codes they recited. That they would promise to never do these things that people said they were doing. So these lists were not made from a place of power meant to control others. That's not what was going on. They didn't really have any power at the time. These lists were meant to clarify who they were and also allow them to survive in a culture that was hostile to them. These early followers of Jesus were swearing not to do the things that people thought they were doing. They were trying to clear up the misconceptions, the ugly rumors about them. So then what do we do with these lists? We're in a much different context. If you're in the United States anyway, then Christianity is not this powerless small group anymore. There's whole segments of Christianity that have used all sorts of means to grab political power, although you could argue that it's definitely misunderstood. So knowing this context, how do these laundry lists of sin lead us into better stories? First off, I hope it's abundantly clear these lists are not meant to beat people over the head with. In fact, I think there's a lot we can take from the lists, but they're not even necessarily, I don't think, meant for every person everywhere forever. They were serving a particular purpose in the time. And if we pay attention to that purpose, I think they could lead us into better stories in a couple different ways. Number one, they can attune us to those who are misrepresented. When we understand the context, we understand that what they were trying to do with these laundry lists of sin or immoral behavior was not to exert power, but to clear up the misconceptions that were going on about them. Pliny the Younger, who I mentioned earlier, was known for persecuting some of these Christians and these early followers, and he would describe them as a disease. When you hear this sort of dehumanizing language like disease or vermin or infesting, it's pretty clear we have a misunderstood group. And so when you hear people today, like, say, our president, if you live in the U.S., describe immigrants as infesting or invading, if they're dehumanized in that way, then they're probably pretty misunderstood. And so the story should attune us to those who are misrepresented, to our Latin American neighbors, to our Muslim neighbors, to our black and brown neighbors who are misperceived. If I want to hit it where it hurts for me, then even my conservative neighbors who I tend to misunderstand and misrepresent. And so these lists and these stories in this context can alert us to this age-old pattern of how we begin to behave out of fear and misunderstanding. How we look at people who we are not in close proximity to, who may appear to be behind closed doors or walls in different communities, and we'll get fearful. We begin to spread rumors about them. We'll begin to try to destroy them or block them off or dehumanize them. 
And so these laundry lists of sin can actually wake us up to that pattern. Move us into closer proximity and help us actually begin to understand those who we have a tendency to dehumanize. Now, there's a second way I think these lists can also lead us into better stories. These lists, I think, were trying to clear up a public misconception, but I also think they were trying to clarify the identity of those people who were hearing them. Because here's what can happen. If you are in the minority and the dominant society is telling you that you are a certain way, if it's ascribing attributes to you, over time, those things begin to sink in. They internalize. And so sometimes it may be necessary to list off the things that you are and the things that you are not. These lists were meant to remind this early group not to believe the lies and rumors that were being said about them. They were meant to remind them who they are. This is so important in forming our identities. When I was a kid, I would hear from my dad and from my grandparents all the time, how great it was to be an Altus. How the Altus family was hardworking, would think for ourselves, and were decent people, and were honest people. And at the time, I was like, oh my word, can you shut up about this? We're not that special. In the grand scheme of things, of course, we aren't that special. But what ended up happening over time is that identity, those lists of things that I was told that we are, and even things I was told that we weren't, began to sink in. And as I grew older, I began to realize, yeah, this is what it means for me to be an Altus. And so sometimes we need these collective reminders about who we are at our best. So these lists aren't meant to shame us, but they're meant to call out or bring out the best in us. And we need that. So if you're listening to this the day it drops and you happen to be in the United States, now might be a good time to call out the best of who we are as Americans, as citizens of the U.S. in the midst of an ugly history an ugly present, at our best, we can be welcoming and loving and diverse and entertain open dialogue. We can represent freedom of press, of voice, of democracy. Zoom out even more, and as human beings, we have those same capacities. Now more than ever, maybe we need to clarify our identities about who we are as humans, as neighbors, that we have amazing capacities to love and to welcome and to forgive and for mercy and justice and equality. And so I hope, oddly enough, these big laundry lists of sin can attune us to those who are misunderstood and remind us who we are at our best. So next time you hear someone tell you what a Christian should or shouldn't do, may you think of these things instead. May you throw that shame off, ignore that desire for certainty or the power that someone may be trying to exert, and listen to those who are misrepresented and remind those around you and yourself who we are at our best. Until next time, friends, peace.